Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Be There in Five is a long form on purpose, mostly solo hosted pop culture podcast I've been doing for about five years. When I say pop culture, I'm much more interested in covering elements of our popular culture that are kind of more zeitgeisty, specific to millennials. I don't really like the normal entertainment celebrity news we cover, but uh, kind of lifestyle elements of our existence, the iconography of our time, whether we're doing something nostalgic or we are diving into elements of millennial culture that I don't always think are associated with us, like purity culture, for example, which we'll touch on today. So uh, over time, I've explored a lot of topics that I think are relevant to today's, but this specific family and show is a piece of popular culture that was a bit of a blind spot for me, admittedly, kind of like Game of Thrones or Harry Potter, like something I just too much time had passed and I hadn't ever gotten into. And I just felt like I it was too much and I didn't even know where to begin. But the Duggarverse, I became considerably less interested when it got so dark and criminal and stuff was pulled off the air that I didn't like want to support it. However, a really interesting documentary on Prime Video just came out called Shiny Happy People. And it was so compelling, so well done. And I wanted to talk about it today and kind of do a makeshift digging deeper of the Duggars that I've avoided doing for so long caveating that so many people are experts on this family. So many people have dug deep into the court records, know all this stuff. I'm kind of coming to you as like, I just learned about all of this. Let me regurgitate what I learned, reflect on it, analyze it, and talk about the broader uh, cultural implications of religions like this and platforming people like this. All the while, I just want to rant about TLC too. And honestly express my frustration with the Duggars laughing about putting people out of business who allowed kids to eat free because I am a card-carrying member of a Sterling Kids Eat Free program in the 90s that was literally the highlight of my existence due to its radioactive cheese sauce, its potato wedge fries, its buttery buns, its hot dogs, and its outstanding fountain soda selection. And that has, of course, Fuddruckers. Warm cookies much? I love that place. It's so good. It almost went out of business. It was recently, like, resuscitated, I think, but someone bought out their remaining locations. But they closed all of them in Illinois. I haven't been to one since I was probably 11 years old. And when I tell you I think about that cheese sauce mm, once or twice a week, I'm not exaggerating. And I guess this is a call to action just to support your local Fuddruckers. But honestly, that part pissed me off because the Kids Eat Free programs are very helpful to a lot of families. And like to take advantage of that just enraged me. And it's like literally the least important point of this documentary. But so, okay, people have asked me to talk about the Duggars for ages. And when I tell you they did not interest me whatsoever, I cannot express that enough. Like something about the optics of that many kids and their lifestyle. Maybe it's the recovering purity culture victim. I don't know. It just didn't seem like escapism or entertainment that I wanted. But finally, this documentary pieced everything together for me that I needed to understand their story and their context and their faith background their political adjacency, and most jarringly, I mean, their criminal involvement. But all of these pieces kind of helped me see why they're relevant beyond just their family unit, but relevant to society, to the current political landscape, etc. You know, despite on the surface seeming so irrelevant to any of my interests. And I think we've discussed before, I mean, my, my taste in reality TV is that I tend to go aspirational. When I, when I say that, I mean aspiration in terms of wealth, luxury, or just like a lifestyle in general that I'm interested in and a show can be a vessel for. But when it turns into a situation that I find undesirable or exploitative, 
I'm not as keen on like the spectacle as maybe I am the spectacular is the best way you can put it. And like not even objectively spectacular. I I just like think it's fun that the cast of Selling Sunset shows up to a breakfast meeting in a bandage dress and a caged heel. Like I like extravagance. I, I like in, inherent drama to a friend group like a Vanderpump Rules, you know, like in a setting that's like aesthetically pleasing. I don't know. This is why I lean more toward Bravo than TLC. And it's funny that in the documentary, they called TLC the lurking channel and not the learning channel because, you know, I love four things, living, laughing, loving and lurking. Um, but I don't lurk when people are like going through a sad medical problem or a hoarding issue or an addiction. There are certain shows that just are not my cup of tea. I, I don't I don't I can't get into love after lockup. Um, I, I broke canon for a while when I <laughs> my personal canon when I watched 90 Day Fiance on TLC. But I had to even give that up because the men like finding their wives online and moving them to middle of nowhere USA only to treat them like shit as if they just wanted them to serve as like living dolls made me profoundly depressed. And it also the ratings were so out of this world and these people did not seem fairly compensated. And you just have to wonder like, God, they're profiting so heavily off of these people's difficult situations. Sometimes um very troubling situations that money could get them out of but their network's incentivized to probably keep them exactly where they are and to unfairly compensate them so they have good tv and all i have to say tlc is unequivocally my least favorite network for reality tv normally um so yeah the duggar's just not never on my radar i went really hard for trading spaces back in the day um you know love hildy glowing moss to a wall I recently bought Wallpaper by Genevieve Gorder, you know, Ty Pennington. There were some rumors around my college when he went on tour. Also, can we just LOL about a Ty Pennington tour? Um, that he was a bit creepy with some of the student Bonnie. Uh, but that was a dream show for a 90s crafter that did not yet know they were in Pinterester. You know, if you're the type that like like to make a pasta angel around Christmas time, it was riveting to think that in 24 hours time, I could DIY my own. Living room. We did ultimately find out those were made of cardboard and did collapse nearly immediately. And they were, you know, incentivized to make the room hideous to upset people. But something about it was just intoxicating. And I did love like a, a wedding story. Kelly and I loved a baby story. I w- I w- at one point, I did watch a little too much what not to wear. But watching those episodes back is kind of problematic. It's, it's interesting. At the time, I really thought Stacey London was doing these women a service. And I was like, oh my God. Uh, Linda did let herself go. She does need to sail away from Capri's and move on to a more tailored full length slack. You know, could, might it improve her lifestyle if her she wasn't caring for her kids on her own? Her husband wasn't out playing golf all day. Yeah, sure. But what a doll. He took the time to submit her to this program for having let herself go after years of exhausting, unrewarding and unpaid labor. I, I don't know. At the time, I thought it was helpful. Now I realize I'm scarred for life. and. Stacey London shamed me from ever wearing horizontal stripes, which is tough because every five to seven years, bloggers go nautical and I always want to, but I just can't. Anyway, the Duggars kind of represented something in me that I find sad. A a repressed religious existence masquerading as joy and purity and innocence. And, you know, to top that off, I guess it's not a surprise that, you know, childless millennial over here. Uh, soon to be with one child, found the idea of 19 children to be a living nightmare. It took me a while to see 
a kid as desirable. And, you know, some days it's a bit touch and go still as I just did. Um, but I'm just like, I, I don't, I deeply don't relate to quiverful gospel, if you will, which we'll get into. Anyway, point being, this documentary gave me what I needed. Another point being, TLC needs to be taken to task for continuing to put this family on television, especially after the abuse allegation surface. And it's fucked up that they only paid Jim Bob, who didn't, who then didn't pay his kids. And it's terrible that they demanded Jill film her birth, but wouldn't cover her medical bills because Jim Bob essentially like tricked her and her husband into signing this contract to work with him and like perpetuity on their wedding night when they were distracted. Like it's so, so it's it's just foul to me. It's so wrong that the production of a show that was like a ratings cash cow for the network had the audacity to treat their subjects that way. And it makes me wonder, I don't know how often people really know what they're getting into when they sign on for these shows and how messed up it is to put minors on television to control the finances and to have their like lives put out there without their consent. It's really fucked up. You know, I got to say, you guys, I as afraid as I am of being a bad parent. This program really shed light to me on what matters as a parent. When I visit some people, some communities with these like alleged family values, especially those that are, you know, supposed to be exuded through one's faith. I'm all of a sudden reminded that I'm better equipped than I probably think I am because I don't care if you claim to have family values and are people of God. I don't care if you speak with a soft tone and always have a smile on your face. You claim to love and protect the children. If you are profiting off of minors on TV without their consent, if you believe in stifled communication, shaming and sexual repression and want to brand it as purity, if you want to brand the excusing and covering up of criminal activity as loyalty, if you bring children into this world, then have the audacity to only love them if they behave, you know, in alignment with or identify with your narrow beliefs. And if you prioritize a propaganda machine over your family's well-being by involving yourself in propagating a faith-based franchising of abuse, you're not a good parent. You don't have good old-fashioned family values. I pray you don't get into the gated community of the skies because that's the aspirational living I'm here for. You're part of a self-serving cult, hungry for power and desperate for the subjugation of women and children. You are a garbage person that has no business having children, much less 19. <sighs> I hate these people. Okay, this documentary also highlighted something that we've been talking about. I don't know if you're on the podcast for a while. Um, my concern with, we talked about this in an episode called Preaching the Friar, um, where we reviewed Maddie Pruitt uh, and like Sadie Robertson and the um, reality TV to influencer pipeline um, and how social media allows for forms of sneaky evangelizing. Like if influencers are influenced by extremist religions, and then they can be very influential online to the masses, yet seem unassuming on the surface. It's almost more effective. The Duggars are a more obvious example of extremism. They live so drastically different than most. Um, but and I don't think people realize that fundamentalism is exists within people that, you know, appear hip, appear modern, look like the people that they're influencing. Like they're they're more unassuming than the kind of obvious. Uh, pantaloon wielding bunch you know they may like the duggars yell nike and stare at their shoes when they see a woman who looks like she sleeps around but they'll also go sleep outside a nike store all night 
to have the coolest kicks around. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't mean to make that right. But you know what I mean? It's like there are people that it's kind of like the Carl Lentz of it all, that it makes their really regressive beliefs seem appealing and they're kind of hidden behind their more modern exterior. And the way that the tenets of faith for more extreme people show up in less obviously extreme people and reinforce regressive, discriminatory public policy is dangerous. And it's not always easy to tie to its to its more fundamental origins. But I loved how this documentary brought everything full circle and how it relates back to Joshua Generation, ADP, um, et cetera. And, and uh, I mean, there's so much to get into the concept of educational neglect and, and thinking through responsible homeschooling. Um, I can't believe I, I really didn't know that some of these paths of homeschooling are deliberately designed as pipelines to get people into the highest forms of government as a form of ministry. That's implementing their theocratic values. Many of us continue to find terrifyingly prevalent and lawmakers and beyond. But we'll get to that. I thought it was really well done. The directors, Olivia Kristen, Julia Willoughby Nason, did an amazing job. They also did Lula Rich, by the way, uh, which I have two episodes on. So not surprising. Um, but I feel like, I mean, hopefully if you watch the show, you saw they issue major trigger warnings. I have to issue major trigger warnings here, not only for the use of the word accountability, which just is hard on my ears, um, but for very serious religious tra trauma, sexual assault, child sexual abuse materials, pedophilia, among other harrowing, criminal, horrifying topics that made me have to watch this documentary like in pieces over the course of several days because it was interesting, riveting, and well done. But the content itself, I think it's the type of thing that um, kind of eats at your spirit and makes you so gravely concerned for the state of the world and the people masquerading as the good guys and their desire for power and control, um, that it really makes you sick to your stomach. And it's not something that I could binge watch without literally feeling ill. So just a heads up for any of you that are like me and are of the more sensitive persuasion. This, These topics are like interwoven in the story and will come up and Please use your discretion when listening. And uh, it's like so embedded into the content. It's like hard to timestamp it out or anything. And just I would avoid this altogether if that's not something you're um, in the mood to hear about today. And I also want to just clarify because I know this would upset people. When we talk about homeschooling, we're talking about homeschooling as presented in the context of this program. Uh, very narrow, unaccredited curriculum and biblical-based teachings that or a form of educational neglect because of their lack of legitimacy, lack of fact-based information. And I understand there are many different organizations, pipelines, routes. You may go with homeschooling. And responsible homeschooling is a different topic. I don't know enough about it, but I, I'm just not talking about homeschooling in general. I'm talking about very specific Christian homeschooling that's based on like doctrinal and scriptural stuff that denies people access to like a formal education thus leaving gaps in their knowledge and not preparing them properly for the world. So I just want to make that distinction too. First, I want to thank our sponsors that are making this week's episode possible. This feels relevant because purity culture is a big source of my lifelong tension with my chest. And particularly right now, given that I'm seven months pregnant plus, um, I literally don't know what where I would be or what I'd be doing without Evelyn and Bobby bras actually fitting me, actually providing me comfort and support and not having a painful underwire. And I love this company and their story. And I've been excited to hear so many of you reaching out after trying them because I asked if they wanted to be a part of my podcast after I tried them. 
since I'm pregnant, I especially wanted people whose chest is changing size to know about it. It was founded by a size 34G woman who was sick of the pain, discomfort, and posture issues that underwire bras were causing her. And she knew there had to be a better way than the 91-year-old underwire technology. Speaking of not enough research done about women's issues, and the founder of Evelyn and Bobby spent years in research and development to create the proprietary EB core technology that's in every single one of their wire-free bras. And they hold a utility patent, meaning the wire-free bras actually function differently than any other product on the market. It's a 3D sling that was meticulously engineered to support from below and is able to comfortably support up to a K-cup. Lately, I've been wearing what's called their Bobby Scoop. It's a newer bra with a scoop neckline that's perfect because I'm like only wearing unitards these days that are scoop neck tank tops. It has the thinnest straps yet and a deeper scoop neck in the front, and it's comfortable, lightweight, supportive. I can't reiterate enough that like I was in pain before I started wearing these and they're smoothing, seamless, invisible underclothing. They mold to fit your unique shape. You trust the unique size chart for each style. It can take up to three wears for their products to fully mold to your unique shape and find the perfect custom fit. But once it does, like, trust me, you'll be amazed. But Evelyn and Bobby's an awesome company designed by women for women. And they're giving Be There and Five listeners an exclusive discount code to try Evelyn and Bobby bras risk-free for yourself. You use code Be There and Five on EvelynBobby.com for $15 off your first bra. That's EvelynBobby.com spelled B-O-B-B-I-E with code Be There and Five for $15 off your first bra. The other thing giving me comfort amidst my sleepless nights lately is, of course, Helix Sleep. Helix has been a partner of the show for a while, and they're just a great company that I've now infiltrated into my entire family, my in-laws. I mean, the Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, and a mattress designed just for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. And the way you know which one will work best for you is to take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it will be shipped to your door free of charge. It asks you your stomach side, back sleeper, what kind of firmness or support you like, if you're a hot sleeper. It asks you all the right questions to match you with the mattress because understandably, it seems weird to buy something you use every day online when you haven't sat on it yet, but they have like the most incredible policy with a 100-night trial and a 10 to 15-year warranty to try out your new mattress. So it's very low risk. Your spine requires some extra TLC, which mine does. Every Helix mattress is a hybrid design with individually wrapped steel coils on the base with premium foam layers on top to give you comfort and support. We've slept on our Helix Dusk Lux for years and are huge fans. And like I've told you, I've appropriately evangelized about this mattress to everybody. And I also love and don't say enough that they support military first responders and teachers and students by giving them a special discount on site, just so you know. Also, Parents Magazine, which is part of the origin story of the Duggars, recently awarded Helix Sleep Kids Mattresses the best mattress winner. Um, they're designed for children 3 to 12. So just a heads up. But anyway, Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash be there in five. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. That's 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash be there in five. I wanted to start by talking about TLC and, uh, you know, I think their role in putting this family and faith on the map and, you know, kind of marketing it as pleasant and pure and family oriented when at least your average passerby like me didn't understand the faith that was behind their lifestyle and especially not the more nefarious history of abuse of 
a quest for power, of educational neglect, among other things. And this is an issue with so much reality TV. It's like, how the hell were they put on the air for so long and positioned as these like shiny, happy people without properly vetting the family until it started to unravel when police reports from 2002, 2003 were unearthed in 2015. But to back up for a second, the like essentially religious cult they belong to is the Institute in Basic Life Principles or IBLP. It's a ministry run by Bill Gothard. This documentary details a lot of these stories of survivors that talk through the horrifying stories of abuse directly from, caused by, or related to this particular ministry. And I also think for your average viewer, like it probably seems like this quirky family in this niche community, they have so many kids and that's the spectacle. And they just happened upon this show. But this documentary kind of details the incredibly strategic nature of Jim Bob's goals in using this as a ministry in general, in a place of the platform, even before the TV program, starting with his political career. Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar are the parents of the 19 kids and counting. He served as a Republican Arkansas state representative from 99 to 2003, ran for Senate in 2002. And I believe that's what him got, got him visibility with the Parents Magazine interview with the Discovery Network, which made TLC release a few specials about them. At first, it was 14 children. It was a special called 14 Children and Pregnant Again. And it did well. And they produced more and more shows until eventually got up to 19 kids and counting, which was canceled in 2015 following an unearthed police report revealing that Josh had sexually abused four of his younger siblings, as well as a fifth minor, I believe we now know that was the babysitter when he was a teenager. Following the cancellation of 19 kids and counting after they had been on television for seven years, and Josh and the family wasn't vetted with what would have been available information to them about his past criminal transgressions. Even though 19 Kids and Counting was canceled unconscionably later that year, TLC puts out a spinoff that centers on the older siblings like Jill and Jessa, who are two of Josh's victims. And on the backs of the these victims of abuse, there is a spinoff program that lasts until 2021 when Josh was arrested and recently sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison for downloading hundreds of images depicting child sexual abuse material. And I'm just so sickened at the lack of vetting in the first place, at continuing to platform this family following what came out in 2015. The exploitation of the sisters who were victims, the nauseating feeling of watching their Megyn Kelly interview and then, like, defending him, it was so hard to watch. Beyond that, Jill details, like I said earlier, that she was not even paid to do that as an adult. Like, I, it's the whole... Ugh. I just... I hope the... I don't know how to take the network to task, but it is, it's so fucked up on so many levels. I didn't even, like, understand the progression of events in the timeline, but it's so crazy how far it had to go until 2021 for this family to be taken off air. And it was interesting to learn more background about how all of this went down. So apparently, ahead of an appearance on Oprah, Oprah's like Harpo Studios team, they received some like a tip, kind of like warning about the family. And then Harpo Studios reached out to the Arkansas Department of Human Services. And that's when the police department opened an investigation. And 
that was 20, I think around 2015. But that wasn't the first time Josh had been involved with the police. In 2006, there was an investigation that dated back to 2002. And the Duggar parents, Jim, Bob, and Michelle knew Josh, the oldest son, had been molesting his sisters and admitted it to a police officer who let it off the hook because this police officer was a friend of Jim Bob named Joseph Hutchins that let Josh off the hook. You know, I guess deeming it was adequate that he was sent to like this camp that was part of the IBLP for five months, which is hardly recourse or uh, sufficient consequence for what is not a crisis of character, but quite literally a crime. And what's crazy is that officer is currently in jail for possessing child sexual abuse materials. He's a monster, too, that covered for them. And so you're kind of like, okay, so if TLC had vetted this family, they could have found out that information. But by the time Harpo Studio reaches out, the police department opens an investigation, this becomes public information. We're years into, you know, propagating the Duggar way of living and positioning them as these shiny, happy people on TLC in a in a primetime slot on a national TV network. So it's like then, you, you know, we'll get into the IBLP and like the deeper learnings and the franchising of abuse that I think contributes to a family operating this way. And how dangerous it is when these people are pursuing positions of power. But just to take it back to the network again, like not only did they amplify this family and position them as being these like ideal, wholesome, pure family values that was one of their highest rated programs. They didn't do right by the subjects either, who many of the Duggar children who were minors at the time, who weren't properly compensated, all the money being funneled to the father even when they were older than 18 years old and, you know, having them do a spinoff on the backs of those victims without properly contracting with and negotiating with and compensating them directly is so horrifying. And Jill Duggar, the only one of the 19 kids who spoke in this documentary, I gather Ginger is also on the outs of the family, but she wrote a memoir called Becoming Freed Indeed. Though her comment on the documentary was kind of mild. I don't know how far out she is. And I have had listeners allegedly, I don't know, I need to deep dive Ginger, um, say that they're concerned that she maybe hasn't really separated or fully deconstructed and kind of hopped from her kind of cultish, restrictive upbringing to be a part of her husband's religion, which I gather is not that dissimilar. So I'm not really sure. Also, her name looks like Jinger. And I I don't understand. There's a lot of other J names they could have gone for, but whatever. Not the point. But yeah, it was tough. I, I can't imagine like as a person preparing to give birth, like or just like as a human that would hope for some, you know, decency and respect that Jill and her husband did not want TLC to attend or cameras to attend the birth of their child. And they had to anyway, because her dad tricked her into signing a contract to work with him for the next five years. Um, She wasn't paid then. And that the only way they could get paid by their father, even retroactively via lump sum, I gather, was if they signed a contract to work with him indefinitely. So he controlled all the finances for all of the children long after they were minors. They participated as minors, arguably unable to meaningfully consent, especially when people are as young as like a toddler, toddler's age. But this is, I mean, I guess that this is where I maybe segue into what we learned about how this church parents and homeschools and and treats their offspring and the culture of abuse it fosters 
And it's no wonder they there's just like no fundamental respect for these children as humans and the gross irresponsibility of having as many as possible by while being such shit parents is so upsetting. To be clear, to wrap up the Josh Duggar piece, honestly, that story is so horrifying and dark and sad to me that like it's why I never wanted to cover it. It's just kind of regurgitating what was already out there and. I don't know. It, that, those are the s- stories that make you like afraid to be a human that you could be existing amongst monsters like that. But he has since been um, arrested, convicted, and imprisoned for various sexual crimes. But specifically, he was sentenced to tw- I think twelve and a half years for downloading images of child sex abuse uh, materials, and that's on top of the like the allegations that came out in 2015 about how him sexually abusing his sisters and another minor, like he was never charged for that, but he was charged for what he possessed on his computer. I don't feel the need to repeat what the documentary said was found. And I don't even think the documentary felt the need to repeat a lot of it too, because they just showed words on screen that like, honestly, I would even advise people to look away from at the four minute mark because it's just like of um, episode four specifically. It's the most sickening thing imaginable. That Homeland Security Investigations special agent said himself were like in the top five of the worst of the worst that they've ever had to examine. And like, it's even so sick to me that in 2015, when the police report was unearthed that he abused his you know younger sisters. And at that time, and he had to resign, of course, Josh was in a position as head of the Family Research Council and their lobbying arm. Jesus Christ. And one of the people who ultimately testified against Josh for the 2021 charges was a woman named Bobby Holt, uh, wife of Jim Holt, a Jim and Bobby Holt, I gather, or longtime family friends, Jim and uh, Jim Bob were like boyhood friends. Um, they found out about Josh's abuse in 2003, and Josh was 15 at the time, and he was dating Jim Bob and Michelle's best friend's daughter, Kaylee. And he asked Jim Bob and Michelle when they were planning on telling them about it. And Michelle said, we weren't going to have them tell you at all. We were going to have Josh confess to Kelly once they were married. And then Jim says, he asked them, are you basically saying you were using my daughter as like a carrot to get Josh to behave the right way? And Jim Bob answered with, well, yeah, kind of. And there's so much to unpack here with this culture and normalizing of abuse. To get back to the parenting thing, I think this was in the first two episodes that I just was so hard to watch and so horrifying. So I gather like, again, I haven't watched the show for years. And thankfully, I think it's been pulled off of streaming sites because no ad dollars want to support this. I gather it was all painted to be very like wholesome, pleasant, sweet, kind of like romanticizing them as like this form of retro Americana. A lot of it was focused on like the marriage and the grandbabies, blah, blah, blah. And I vaguely knew about their tie to what's called the, is it the quiverful movement or is it like a philosophy? Basically, each child is an arrow in God's quiver. There's no contraception or family planning. And the number of kids you have is left up to Sky Daddy. I mean, religion 101 is like anything that actually is very much controlled by your own actions and free will. Like, you know, toss it up to the doings of a supernatural being so you don't have to take accountability for it or so you can romanticize its occurrence and call it a blessing, thus ostracizing people who don't have that same quote unquote blessing as if there's some reason or cause and effect to why they may not be able to have as many children as you like, ugh, get a life. 
but I mean, no contraception. Like, I mean, that's very Catholic too. Um, so that's not unique to this religion, but according to Michelle, who claims to believe in being joyfully available to her husband and does not believe in contraception. And they tell this story about how birth, how birth control early on their marriage caused a miscarriage, which is not science. And also you can tell it's used. It's a lever Jim Bob pulls to like shame Michelle. And she cries when she talks about it. It's just like, it's this really weird story that does not make any sense. And, and yeah, Quiverful, I guess, is this concept of having as many children as possible. And even when I think cousin Amy said when she was like eight, you know, eight years old, 12 years old, she even knew then to be fruitful and multiply. Well, they had not been taught about sex. They certainly hadn't been taught anything about their bodies. It's a scary thing within a culture of abuse where you're you're like not given the vocabulary to even understand what is bad or what is abuse or what's like happening to you. And it's so sick that these people are like behind some of the biggest political movements to ban abortion. And, you know, you think of these people claiming to protect the children and their innocence and purity, but they're teaching them to be fruitful and multiply at age eight and 12. And it's it's so sick. Talking about the, the burning of pop culture artifacts of anything Disney of Winnie the Pooh, Cabbage Patch Kids were made by a warlock. The hypocrisy that surrounds a lot of religious conservative ideology that both infantilizes and sexualizes young women is so frustrating on so many levels where your brain is seen as too young to attend a drag show, but your body is seen as fair game for carrying a forced pregnancy to term. It's all about control, controlling what's in your mind, controlling what you choose to do with your own body. I mean, I don't I know I don't need to tell you guys this, but like the hypocrisy and the virtue signaling and and the political theater that the religious right wastes our time with makes me so angry because when you actually look at data about what's harmful to children, I mean, like, okay, some headlines that I've seen in the last year or two, we we, we overlook church abuse so much. We already know high level of the history of abuse within the Catholic Church that's very public. Even in the last year, I've read headlines like more than 150 priests associated with the Archdiocese of Baltimore accused of sexually abusing more than 600 children. In May, Illinois, the Illinois Attorney General released the result of an investigation into allegations of sexual abuse by Catholic clergy. The investigators found that 451 clergy sexually abused nearly 2,000 children since 1950, far more than the 103 individuals the church had named when the state review began in 2018. Do you remember a year or two ago, the 205-page database from the Southern Baptist Convention that had more than 700 entries from cases from 2000 to 2019, detailing how the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee mishandled allegations of sex abuse, stonewalled their survivors, and prioritized protecting the Southern Baptist Convention from liability by covering up all of this, these cases of abuse? It is such a joke to me, all of the, the conversations that are had about what we should and shouldn't protect our children from having access to exposure to what books and what facts we eliminate from their education trying to infiltrate public secular spaces with this these religious based values and ideologies and it's so crazy to me how these people like obsessed with church have the audacity to waste our time with trying to galvanize voters by making drag shows adult only spaces one according to the data of what we actually know to be harmful to children. If the goal is protecting the children, the spaces we should be making a dot only are churches, honestly. In 2019, there was an Associated Press investigation that found that nearly 1,700 priests and other clergy members that the Catholic Church considers credibly accused of child sexual abuse are living under the radar with little to no oversight from religious authorities or law enforcement. 
the priests, deacons, monks, and lay people are now people that teach middle school math, that counsel survivors of sexual assault. They work as nurses and volunteers at nonprofits. And one reason of many people like the Duggars are so dangerous for covering up the crimes of those they associate with slash sending them to religious-based rehab or correctional facilities that have absolutely no criminal legal consequences that actually would result in a meaningful prosecution giving them criminal history is because without that criminal history, these people are able to leave the organization, have suffered some internal covered up consequences of their abuse, but go off into the world, live near playgrounds, live near daycares, be in positions of trust, be employed in childcare. According to this Associated Press article, more than 160 continued working and volunteering in churches, Roughly 190 obtained professional licenses to work in education, medicine, social work, and counseling, and 76, as of August, still had valid credentials in those fields. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> I choking. Um, I've I have endless thoughts about uh, the the culture of abuse that exists within religious spaces and and just how the biblical patriarchy upholds what's very similar to these umbrellas of power that the iblp taught that the documentary attributes to how they're able to uh exert such control over their uh members so bill gother the founder of iblp again the ministry the duggars are involved in institute of basic life principles the the teachings were all about obedience all about authority and these like tiers of authority and they were called umbrellas of protection and if you get out from under your umbrella of protection, you expose yourself to the realm and power of Satan's control. So children have to obey their parents. Wives have to obey their husbands. Husbands have to obey God. But Gothard, there are clips of him also talking about this kind of authority in a sense of um, law enforcement, governmental authority, blah, blah, so on and so forth. And when you think of the, the enmeshment of people that are involved with this ideology and how even like the law enforcement that Jim Bob went to let josh go for a crime and he himself was a predator it's like oh my god just like a rage explosion to use a technical term okay sorry can we backtrack a bit to the parenting because i think it this kind of like i'm not doing a good job but i appreciate how the documentary did a good job of showing how this environment is is very much bred so according to the documentary there's this book called to train up a child written by michael pearl and his wife debbie Apparently, this was used as teaching material for the IBLP ministry. And Michael Pearl was a fundamentalist teacher. And he was one of the people that they showed in the throwback clips where he was like spanking a puppet. There's another like so disturbing clip of a man on stage demonstrating spanking of an actual little boy. It was really disturbing. I'm, this like man calls little boy up on stage, pretends he's his dad. Spanks him by saying, Daddy's not pleased with the way you've acted, as the crowd like roars with laughter and says, Give Daddy a hug, but then spanks him again for not putting himself enough into the hug. It was so disturbing, so hard to watch. It it demonstrated like the the trauma that is caused by that sort of punishment where you you're conditioning a child to complete love and abuse and to see violence as an act of love. But Michael Pearl was a fundamentalist preacher who argued the techniques for training an animal or a human are the same. And he taught to, to, to punish children by spanking and hitting them with like rods and similar objects. And this is according to a BuzzFeed article. In 2010, Michael released a statement that said, we do not teach corporal punishment nor hitting children. We teach parents how to train their children, which sometimes requires the limited and controlled application of a spanking instrument, to hold the child's attention on admonition. 
Over a million parents have applied these biblical principles with joyful results. Lara Smith, another ex-member, claims that these teachings were indeed enforced. All children, if they were following the Institute's guidelines, were spanked until they stopped crying, which could be hours. And cousin Amy, who's the cousin of the Duggar kids, um, so they called it encouragement, which is really, really sick. And even outside of the actual, like, more obvious examples of physical abuse, just even the dynamic Michelle, like, pleasantly relays as the buddy system is abusive in and of itself and completely denies these kids their childhood by requiring them to essentially be parents of the kids the parents chose to have. She said when the Michelle Duggar said when the baby is born, sorry if I say Duggar by accident, I don't know why I do that. Um, when the baby is born, it's my buddy until it's weaned. Then it goes to a buddy, AKA an older female in the house. So these, these 11 year olds were providing childcare and like, that's so exploitative of TLC to make the buddy system, like look charming to force these young girls into like full-time childcare and a life of labor when they should be getting education, they should be being kids. And Beyond that, kind of like the romanticization of this lifestyle. And like even just thinking about if this like inspired other families to do the same, like Jesus, the, the, the financial burden alone most families could not handle with this many children. They were being, you know, healthily compensated and they were using their own children to raise their children that the parents chose to keep having. And that just like, yeah, is an upsetting piece that I'm sure a lot of people that watch the show take a step back now and they're like, yeah, that was that was an interesting or niche like reality TV. Like that was just wrong. They also taught, uh, I think Michelle Duggar, the mom talked about this thing called blanket training. That was like so sad. Basically you put, you put like an infant on a blanket an infant and then you put something that the infant wants a toy or whatever over to the side. And every time they reach for it, they get slapped. Why? To deter their rebellious spirit from infancy. I mean, and then you watch the kids' behavior again. I didn't watch the show in real time, but like I watch these clips, and I'm like, they're, they're, the allegedly pleasant way they act is like this product of being forced into submission and punished and scared to raise their voice, to act a certain way, to act out. They've been like developmentally stunted, like from exploring, from pushing back. They've been denied their childlike wonder. But I think like maybe the maybe it's because of the life phase I'm in. I don't know the the principles of parenting like our aunt really gave me pause i think someone in the documentary said he was kind of in the right place at the right time where parents were feeling like scared of kids at risk behavior wanting to keep them safe not trusting the schools blah 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 and to give you a sense of scale roughly two million people attended one of uh gothard seminars and he really emphasized this quiverful movement of having as many kids as possible despite he himself never being married or having kids later was forced out of leadership because of alleged sexual harassment and assault of young girls. I guess when, you know, when you're watching this and you, you realize how Gothard, like, systematically created this organization of authoritarian control where a premium is placed on obedience, even though everyone theoretically falls under these umbrellas of authority, you know, the people left the most vulnerable are women and children. I'll get to the women piece in a second. But with children, I think it really stuck out to me how this 
abuse was called encouragement, how they were robbed of their innocence and sense of wonder, and how it really just causes you, conditions you to operate early on from one place alone, and that is a place of fear. And where I think this is relevant to a lot of people's experiences, especially in certain arguably Protestant churches, like I did not go anywhere close to something fundamentalist. I wouldn't argue what I experienced in the youth groups and camps I went to was extreme, but it had a similar undertone of a fear-based gospel of this God of wrath more so than this God of love. And, you know, they show the clip of the Duggar children singing at a seminar and they're singing the words, why should I not be put in hell to suffer for all time? Like young children. And was it Lara who said she would dream of being like burned alive over like just a kid doing kids stuff? Children should not have eternal damnation hung over their heads as a means to behave. It's interesting to me that we don't even let people learn the the, the boundaries of their own character. It's kind of like when they were, there was that creepy guy doing the infomercial for Covenant Eyes that the wording was like so weird. Uh, winning the fight against porn every day. It's like if software or God is the only thing holding you back from being a pedophile, don't we have bigger fish to fry? This is the danger of of boys will be boys, of the way men being talked about as these beings who can't control themselves does more to excuse their behavior than it does to prevent it. It's teaching young men like your default setting is a predator. You cannot help yourself. So when people like Josh are creeps and criminals and predators and it goes unreported and the parents gloss over it and the girls are forced to defend him and so on and so forth, it's because they're all groomed into this culture of abuse where that behavior is expected and thus normalized. It is absolving of accountability from the start. And it is blaming young women from the start. The victim-blaming culture it breeds when you're teaching young women they're causing harm to themselves because of what they were wearing or how they were acting. I mean, modesty is, is it's, it's victim-blaming 101. And I think, I, I don't mean to make it about myself, now I'm terrified to bring in personal anecdote after the Bama Rush documentary. Um, but like, truly, I've thought a lot about how, how these religious institutions go out of your way to break your spirit, just like they were doing to these kids, but even in less extreme environments, um, to make you genuinely be believe you're the worst and you're a sinner and you're unworthy of God's grace. So you're left constantly operating from a deficit and having to uh, repent. And like, I didn't by default think my body was a weapon. I didn't think that I, by existing, was tempting anybody. I didn't think I had to control how boys responded to me until I was told those things. Looking back on my experience in the church, I'm like, I would have made mistakes, sure, but I would have, my nature would not have allowed me to perform a lot of the behaviors they told me I was inevitably going to perform because I'm such a sinful and broken person. But actually, I, I wouldn't have done any of the things that they threatened I was going to do without God. Some people might have, sure. And while it's good to keep kids out of trouble, I think it just scared the shit out of me and made me assume I was a much worse person than I was. 
there was a point somebody interviewed made that I thought was really important where like from a young age, when you're encouraging this like level of granularity and introspection, when you're looking inward that much and keeping score of everything you're doing, consumed with guilt and shame and sinning and blah, 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 you are spending so much time examining and pathologizing yourself and your own sin. You you don't have time to question the system itself. And I think that's how they do it with children. And I think with women, especially with this quiverful method, it's like Jesus Christ. If you're supposed to be joyfully available to your husband, never use contraception and have as many kids as possible, what are you? Exhausted, overworked. Your Your body is going through so much, your hormones, your mental health, the cognitive and physical labor that is performed as a result of motherhood, especially in the context of incredibly regressive and rigid gender roles and what they require of women. These women have absolutely no time to th- probably critically think about, or push back, or get themselves out of this incredibly oppressive system. It's like everything is designed to keep women and children as subjugated as possible, to be so distracted by looking inward and blaming yourself and feeling ashamed of yourself. Well, the older men, the people in positions of power and authority are able to deflect everything toward everyone else. And that's how this authoritarian hierarchy is designed, because it's designed to do what? Protect people, not who are vulnerable, but who are in positions of power. In this context, the men, their personal responsibility can be avoided if you blame Satan or temptation or whatever outside force outside of those umbrellas of authority, because you're at the top of it. And instead of your own decision making and free will, and you can blame your sexual or relationship based transgressions on the women because it's indoctrinated into the women. that They are responsible and have to control how the men around them behave to the point where it's in their homeschooling material. I'll get to that in a second. But um, I just think it's important to point out how like this authoritarian structure relies on fear and shame to keep everybody in line and how that can manifest in children. And I just think how sub- how they're positioned as so kind and calm and peaceful and pure and joyful in one context is really sad when you think of them being forced into submission and punished and fear-based and how they can't really act or explore or figure out the boundaries of their own personality. And only in the past couple of years have I really started to like understand to be able to put words to, I think, and we discussed this briefly in the Kate Lila episode, Sky Daddy Issues, where even just being partially involved with like Southern Baptist camps or Assemblies of God youth groups, even if you're going once a week and it's you're not fully immersed in a cult, regardless of your level of access, I think just coming into contact with this ideology that like hangs something so abstract and so permanent and damning and, and so big for a kid to understand, like your salvation, like even when you hear this shit in passing, like it stays with you. And now as an older woman thinking about the impact this would specifically have on younger women, where your glory, like, you know, in the kind of fear-based God of wrath vibes that I was exposed to in these places, like they're glorifying a relationship with a higher power that mimics an abusive one. And okay, I'm I'm just read a chapter that I I wrote a paragraph about this in my book. And I promise I only rant about my religious grievances in one chapter, but since the book is called One in a Millennial, um, (laughs) it's kind of like how the documentary it's not just the Duggars. It's it's talking about how this is broader and more pervasive in political and secular spaces too and blah, blah, blah. The reason I bring up like purity culture and stuff in my book is that I think so much of purity culture infiltrated millennial pop culture, public schools, sex ed and beyond 
So even if you didn't directly interact with it, you absorbed a lot of it by how religiously affiliated groups fed into and funded secular spaces in the 90s specifically. But anyway, I said, when I really think about it, it represents how this place that was supposed to be all about love and light dimmed a lot of my girlish innocence and wonder. I'm quite alarmed when I think about the dangers of telling young people they are fundamentally broken, incomplete sinners who aren't worthy of God's grace and mercy during some of the most formative years of self-esteem development. I know that this disposition is doctrinal and sacred to many Christian churches, but to use this preaching style with young women present is something I now think resembles an abusive dynamic more than a loving relationship with a well-meaning higher power. I struggle with how subtly and not so subtly the gospel reinforced submissive gender roles by using male pronouns for God, who's allegedly supposed to be genderless, so why isn't he? I know there's a theological response to this, but not the point. It's kind of a baseless argument when the choice is to both use and punctuate male pronouns as identifiers. It embeds a default reverence, gratitude, and sense of not being enough toward a male figure at all times. I can't speak to how all Christians are taught, but from my experience, we were told to worship a figure with male pronouns blindly, told we're worthless and broken without him, and although we can never question the standards we're held to, we must constantly repent for all the ways we inevitably fall short of them. And the only solution for the looming threat of punishment from this alleged father figure was to praise, worship, and obey harder. And I think about that version of God a lot and teaching young people that that is the model for unconditional love, which is love with countless conditions from a person that constantly breaks you down, tells you you're the worst, makes you suffer, and you're just supposed to thank them for it. It's I don't even claim severe religious trauma. My parents, my family, like my, my were not involved with these crazy places. I literally dabbled in like camps and youth group. And I talk about them a lot, not only because I think I have a certain like freedom and liberty to because it's not a mesh with my community and family in a way that would keep me silent. But I'm kind of shocked and surprised and amazed by how much a lot of it stuck with me despite kind of being in passing. And it makes me think a lot about, you know, when I have kids, the the adults, the figures of authority, the camp counselors, the people they come into contact with, sometimes you listen to those people more than your own family, more than your own parents. And when you can use fear, when you can use big things like salvation, when you can tell someone like your parents or your sister for doing XYZ or going to hell, like it's going to scare a young, undeveloped person. And a lot of people went to those camps and youth groups with me and it passed right through them. But for some people like me that are sensitive and fear driven, um, you, you know, I had the shelving that held on to it. And I just was going to camp to water ski and to like do a ropes course. You just don't expect that with a good old fashioned, wholesome co-ed lock-in, your extra cheese pizza comes with a side of, you know, sexual shame and a lack of understanding about consent. Uh, These fun activities that religious groups do that encourage young kids to invite their friends to come along are oftentimes fine, but oftentimes they're a sneaky form of evangelizing. And I think that's a broader theme of the documentary. That was from chapter four in my book that comes out in January of 2024 called One in a Millennial. That is largely very lighthearted and pop culturally based. But I go into some deeper uh, implications of, I think, the culture that uniquely surrounded millennials and purity culture is a piece that is kind of a through line. And I think how it affected uh, a lot of things, like I said, like sex ed like youth group, WWJD bracelet culture, and beyond even into the way I like interpreted uh, boy band songs and romantic love. And there's more where that came from. If you want to pre-order my book, One in a Millennial, Lincoln bio or whatever, um, <laughs> throw, a, throw a gal a bone who was too afraid to bone because of purity culture. Um, anyway, I promise this isn't one broader effort in self-promotion. I just sometimes it's easier for me to quote what I said directly. So I'm not like paraphrasing myself and... Uh, then you'll hear the same thing repeated later. 
Anyway, okay, so let's get to homeschooling. I was just out of town at like a multi-day destination wedding, staying with a bunch of people in one house, and I was thrilled to see it was powered by liquid IV. (laughs) Hydration isn't only for people training for championships or like marathons. It's about daily maintenance. And, you know, think of airport travel days, being outside in the sun or standing on the sidelines of a kid's soccer game. Even for me, just sitting here recording, proper functional hydration is essential in liquid IV. I mean, most of you have probably heard of it by now. It's the number one powdered hydration brand in America. And it's legit. I just, to use scientific terms, their their hydration multiplier is an incredible product that with one stick, you can hydrate two times faster than water alone, plus get essential vitamins and three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. Essential vitamins being B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it comes in 12 delicious, refreshing flavors to keep your hydration routine exciting. I was partial to the guava for a long time. Now I've taken my talents to pink lemonade. But what I also love about Liquid IV is they believe that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthy, healthier world. They've partnered with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help companies protect their water and their future. And to date, they've donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world, which I think is really cool. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code be there in five at checkout. That's 20% off anything when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code BETHEREIN5 at liquidiv.com. It also delighted me when I was at this wedding that the day before everyone was sitting around putting on their Olive and June press-ons. One of my sister-in-laws went with a classic French press-on. One went with a flower shower. I went for like a long almond neutral shade. Truly the fastest way to get a salon-worthy mani at home. Whether you do the press-ons or the mani systems, awesome too. It's everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize it with your choice of six polishes. It doesn't chip, last seven days or more, and it breaks down to just $2 a manicure. It especially lasts long if you use their award-winning uh, cuticle serum. And I can't live without the acetone-free polish remover pot. I recently saw a TikTok video. I think it was maybe like Sierra from Summer House talking about how much she hated getting her nails done. And the comments were like, doesn't literally everybody hate this? And I was like, I feel better because I really hate going to the nail salon. And just like the appointments going to and from sitting there for forever, unable to use my hands and like the hours for me, like I just want to be able to get my nails done and it just makes me feel more put together, but like on my own terms and at my own weird hours, whether I'm like awake in the middle of the night or like while I'm recording. And I love the Olive and June Manny system for just this, especially their stabilizing handle Poppy that makes it easy to paint with your non-dominant hand. But for special events, when I was on tour, like I was very devoted to the press-ons. And I'm particularly obsessed with their petty system uh, that I don't talk about enough, but comes with everything you need for a salon-worthy pedicure at home, too. All Their products don't damage your nails. They last for a long time. You can, you know, do a mani quickly in like less than 10 minutes, like with the press-ons or the quick dry, because they dry in about a minute and last for five plus days and give you full coverage in one to two coats. And In general, if you're ever looking for a great gift to give someone for a little self-care, or if you just want to stop wasting time at a nail salon, I can't recommend them enough. Visit oliveandjune.com slash be there in five for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash B-E-T-H-E-R-E-I-N-F-I-V-E for 20% off your first Olive and June system. Oliveandjune.com slash be there in five. So like it's this wholesome program that bill gothard is running with this these umbrellas of authority um and somebody very i should have written down the names i'm sorry the people in the documentary was brave and brilliant and but one one of the people said i believe it was the guy that's a pastor and was former iblp he said this organization makes every father a cult leader 
and every family and island. I'm totally botching it. But it, that was like such a great um, indicator of like how the father is under the authority of like Gothard and this broader religion, but everyone's under authority in his home. And in the way that they homeschool and that the way that they like are encouraged to exist and be separated from culture and this and that, they don't really have many touch points outside of the cult to calibrate it against like what is normal or what is healthy. As if this like allegedly wholesome program wasn't already terrifying. What makes it more measurably more insidious is when you learn that the IBLP, their goal, their overt goal apparently was to make their extremist beliefs mainstream to gain more political control. And this particular vehicle with the Duggars was via reality TV and assuming it was kind of designed to, like I said earlier, help normalize and soften people to the extremism through positioning them in this like shiny, happy people, joyful, wholesome light. You know, we're watching a, an abusive dystopia, but labeling it as good old fa fashioned family values. And then TLC puts the plaths on TV. They put the baits on TV. What we have is a PR show that for Gothard's teachings that TLC created. But in the background, there's a broader goal by this organization of making it mainstream to extend it to other public platforms beyond TV and terrifyingly positions of power. And a pipeline for this that I thought was so interesting was homeschooling using this Christian curriculum called ATI, Advanced Training Institute. And I can't help but feel like, oh, my God. There, with all the, so many conversations about education lately and parents like wanting to control education, like this, this whole thing just spooks me from tip to tail. So ATI, like I said, is an acronym for Advanced Training Institute. And what I thought the documentary did a really good job at kind of tracing it back to was that it was essentially created by Bill in response to segregation coming to an end. And this idea that homeschooling curriculums gave is that a plural word? Gave parents more control of where their education was taking place so their kids wouldn't get, quote unquote, you know, brainwashed. Um, and I didn't actually really know that about like the 80s, that this like homeschooling movement uh, in many cases was born from parents not wanting their kids to go to in integrated schools, which is just fucked up beyond belief, but not surprising. I know I bring this article up all the time, but when you read the, the Politico article the, of the real origins of the religious right, I think it does a really interesting job tracing back the moral majority and the Jerry Falwell of it all and how white evangelicals became such a voting block that can move the needle and that specifically co-opted issues like abortion that weren't really initially on their radar, but ultimately realized that's what would get people in their camp. And it talks about how the kind of roots of the moral majority have a lot more to do with uh, the end of segregation. And abortion was just something that they brought in later as a means to get people to vote. I mean, all roads lead back to these systemic issues. And I thought I really never thought about homeschooling in that context, if I'm honest, maybe because I don't have kids yet. Obviously, there's a difference between responsible homeschooling and what this is, which I think is educational neglect. Because basically, the wisdom booklets, which are what their entire curriculum was made of, apparently they took Gothard 10 years to write. They're the foundation of the ATI curriculum. 
And they apparently provide next to no education. There were 54 booklets and categories within each, and you would focus on one category a week. And at the end of the year, you would basically just start all over again. <laughs> you learn the same stuff, memorize the same stuff. The teachings are based on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And basically, they teach like this about this past, this like fantastical past that's not real, very rooted in creationism and very rooted in when everything was, quote unquote, better. You know, the olden days when things were simpler, less complicated, more pure, more wholesome. But who are they better for in this country? I mean, white Protestant men. Anyway, it, it it's crazy that they likened or the leadership said this was equivalent to a high school diploma or a pre-law degree or pre-med degree. And the, they, they would position it as these, you know, 16-year-olds allegedly are going to go out into the world, not only with this like holy upbringing that you can totally control under your roof, but with the equivalent of two bachelor's degrees, which is not true. And in the documentary, Jim Bob talks about how they teach their kids that evolution's a lie. They take them to the Creation Museum, where they're taught that the Earth is 4,000 years old. And Michelle talks about how it's backed by science. I mean... And then seeing Paul and Morgan later at the Creation Museum, I can't. One of the things they showed is how like fo fossils and the wisdom booklets, they called fo fossils formation, one of the greatest hoaxes ever suggested in the name of science. Fossils did not accumulate over millions of years. They were all formed simultaneously in one great flood. And then one person talks about how um, a friend of his was never taught math beyond fractions. Because her father said she could use them in baking, and that's good enough. Now, you know I'm no woman in STEM, but holy shit, you guys. So, like, imagine learning this in school. These are some excerpts I found on the internet from the wisdom booklets. This is them talking about physical and mental illnesses and how they're caused by sin. The relationship between physical illnesses and spiritual conflicts has long been recognized. God warns that violations of his laws will result in physical diseases, but he also promises that obedience to his ways will cause our health to spring forth speedily. Physical illnesses are not always the consequences of violating biblical principles. They're often simply manifestations of mental and emotional disorders that are produced from the root problems of bitterness, greed, and moral impurity. As more, they're saying this is the equivalent of a pre-med degree. As moral standards continue to decline, there will be corresponding increases in personal, marital, and family conflicts. Those who experience such conflicts will usually make inaccurate connections between causes and subsequent effects. So like this, your choices, your thoughts, your sexual purity, your morality, your obedience to, a, you know, an authoritarian regime. These are all things that predicts who lives or dies, who, who gets a head cold, who gets cancer. This is what this is what makes weirdos go pray for people in a wheelchair, teaching people that the things that happen to us or our physical or mental health are a product of like our own sins is so fucking dangerous. That's not you or me hearing this as fully grown adults that can calibrate it with our existing knowledge and experience. This is conditioning. This is indoctrination. This is teaching this as fact to like, how do you, there's the, the, the amount you would have to undo and deconstruct is astounding to me. This is from Recovering Grace, that organization they talked about in the documentary that shed light on teachings of IBLP and ATI, and one of the victims like posted their story and got through found out about it. This is from 2015. It's talking about like the first chapter even going into the umbrella in this like authoritarian mentality. And like again, this is schooling. It says 
Our faith multiplies as we see how God speaks to us through those he has placed over us. Each of us has a multitude of character deficiencies that need to be perfected. God uses those in authority to do this. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Allegedly, that's from Proverbs. So basically, it's like any problem you have, any rebellion, any relationship rifts, any abuse, neglect your experience, like your problems can be traced back to not being obedient to authority, not listening to authority, not going to authority, which there is one section about counseling and taking your complaint up with your abuser. And the religious rationale for this is that every person under the authority of a male spiritual leader, father, husband, religious leader, protects them from Satan's wiles. If a person who is under protection rebels against the authority figure, Satan will capture them because they've committed the sin of witchcraft. They, may, they, have, they have this like diagram of the umbrella of parents, church, government, and then those under authority and how rebellion is two straight arrows to witchcraft and two straight arrows coming down from Satan. So then it's like, if somebody asks you for help, do you have to determine who is spiritually responsible for them? So if a wife asks you for counsel, direct her to her husband. If a teenager comes to you, direct them to their parents. If a church member seeks your advice, send them to the pastor. Again, these are the people that are protected. These are the people that are actively suppressing the women and children. So their, their counseling is to send them back to their inner circle, to the people that are probably the most abusive toward them or ignoring the problem. I mean, think of some of the issues for the Duggars. The Duggar girls were uncomfortable with something their brother was doing. They were being sent to their father. If, you know, they were uncomfortable being 11 years old and having to care for an infant full time, they're being sent toward their parents who are the ones making them do that. Like this, the entire system prevents outside intervention and the event of neglect or abuse and it's very scary, but it makes sense how insular it is and why the people in power are protected. And this, folks, is why we gossip. This is why we talk about people. This is why the origins of like, oh, women always yapping, always talking about people, acting like gossiping is a sin, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. We're interested in each other. We're interested in each other's lives. There's a way you can do it without being mean. There's a difference between like snark and joking and like being mean spirited and hateful. And beyond that, what keeps the, the health of these organizations depends on silence. The health of anything toxic depends on silence. So yap away. Have a podcast where you talk to yourself for two hours. Who cares? Like, I'm so over being chastised for chattiness. I don't mean gossip in terms of screwing people over to revealing their secrets. I mean, chatting about socially useful information, what people are up to, talking about our hopes, dreams, fears, regrets. I mean, think about the hunter-gatherers. Before there was like a means of faster communication, how did they know like who was safe, who they couldn't, couldn't trust, who got the best berries in the land? Like, I don't know. That was a weird reference. I, that is something that would go in the wisdom box a lot. (laughs) Maybe I should be questioning my own education. But, you know, it's, there's an, there's a level of social connection and cohesion to being able to talk about the people that are in the same circle that you're in. And I think a lot of the issues of people having to even approach like motherhood with an overly pleasant disposition and feeling like they don't have the right to complain and feeling like everyone else is having this great experience when they're really suffering from postpartum. Like all of these things I think are that we struggle with, especially as women, I think are products of our own incredibly challenging experiences, but also a function of not thinking that other people 
are having these experiences. I don't know. I There's just a difference between like good and bad gossip. And I just feel like w- my experience, the church not only was like very scared of the culture, but also very scared of gossip. But I never really thought about that until recent years. And then when I was watching the documentary and they were like, uh, when Bill Gother was being reported for inappropriate behavior for sexual assault, he then what does he do because of these, you know, umbrellas of authority? He then goes out and proselytizes that gossip is the devil's handiwork and then has mouthpieces like Jill and Jessa being like, if you have a problem with someone, speak to them directly. Don't go to somebody else, which is, again, just protecting people with bad behavior. I just don't understand why women get made fun of for like talking and shopping when men since the beginning of time have been like networking and they call it talking shop. It's like the same thing. Who cares? Good life. Sorry, I'm kind of in a bad mood. I literally cannot. I think, too, like just being pregnant and seeing what this does to your body. And this is like one, like my first time. I'm like, oh, my God, if I was forced to do this over and over and over for the next, like, let's say I started earlier and I did this over the course of two decades over and over, like, it's it is hard like admittedly it's hard to do anything when your physiological needs are compromised and it's been educational for me because you know on the internet people will be like you didn't post about this you didn't say this they're like on oh, my ass about something i did or didn't do and i'm like i was just like trying to put socks on today that's why i'm careful with like being nitpicky about what public figures do and don't post about when they post like, as I've always said, if you invited me to your C-section and that wasn't too personal, like, I would like to know your thoughts on an insurrection. But, you know, it's like when people are never addressing anything or like Taylor Swift's putting a guy on stage that like profoundly offended many of her fans and without, you know, more care and thought, I was not a fan of that. And like, I'm critical of public figures too, and I think we're allowed to be. But I, I do think it's interesting, like, going through... On the flip side, being a person that people ask things of you when you're kind of going through something like personal and medical and you just like you can barely function, much less perform for the world. It is an interesting experience that has made me um, empathetic. And yeah, it just goes back to like we know this. I think this is the the cleverful, the overpopulation, the constantly being pregnant, constantly having kids, whether it was in Catholicism or in this weird cult. Like, I do think there's a lot to keeping women so incredibly preoccupied or pregnant like that because I do feel limited in my mental capacity and my physical capabilities and my level of energy like pregnancy so hard on your body postpartum so hard on your body parenting so hard on you like I just I feel ragey when I think about how this doing this all the time for an extended period of time it's such a pivotal point in your life when you're a fully formed human and adult with opinions that could be exercising critical thinking and their own autonomy like it's just the whole system so designed to keep you like busy and buried and barely surviving and meanwhile we like to pretend we're like a country that like empowers women when policy-wise we're barely supported and um so these wisdom booklets they take a verse out of context from sermon on the mount And then we'll use it to teach history, social studies, science, medicine, ethics. And this is what they covered in the documentary. This was module 15, Ye Are the Light of the World. In this section, they take like scripture out of context to discuss 
The church is alight during the Crusades. The signs of the eyeball, the medicinal value of sunlight, biblical citations for each color of the prism. Uh, what they showed in the documentary was learn 10 ways to direct the eyes of others to your countenance. So if you're going to be a light, how do you get other people to notice it? And it goes out of its way to explain how you need to like smile and be pleasant to get people to direct their attention to your face and avoid what are called eye traps. Eye traps are things that draw attention to somewhere on your body that it shouldn't be drawing attention to and allegedly dim your light. So somebody staring at you simply dims your light as if you're responsible for that. And again, this is like in booklet 15, page 625, in a section called Medicine. It's an illustration of six women. And it says, can you identify the eye traps in these pictures? What could you do to alter them? These women don't look like they they bought their clothes at Deb or Rave. They're not wearing anything scandals whatsoever. These women are up a cold water creek without a paddle in 1984. They're dressed so modestly, but you're supposed to point out the traps in a woman wearing a below-the-knee slit that doesn't even go up, that's like so low on the leg. It's the part you like still shave. Apparently, it's an eye trap. Below-the-knee dress with full-length sleeves and a high-neck collar, but the shoulders and arms are made of lace. Eye trap. One person's wearing a full sweater, crew neck, and long skirt, but with a long necklace draws away from her face. Somebody has just simply a drop waist and it draws away from her face. The message in not only putting this in the medical section, but the message is very clear, clearly reinforced that men are these creatures who will lust after you. If they stare at you anywhere beyond your face, they will dim your light. Any if they act on your on their impulses, it is your fault for having eye traps and you have to protect yourself and how people behave toward you and if people touch you or stare at you by how you dress. And apparently if a man did accost or assault a woman, according to this Recovering Grace article, it was reasonable to ask, was she out from under authority? Was she dressed immodestly? And this is relevant to not just people in cults, but to modern society when we say things like, well, what was she wearing? When I was reading through this Recovering Grace website, it just like points out how before you have, not only you're not allowed to ask questions, but before you even start to have like the critical thinking skills or experience to have questions, they make it clear that you already have the answers. And the way even the chapters are structured, like it says, before we've asked any questions, we know who we should turn to for God's wisdom because of chapter one, authority. So turn to the authority, authority figures in your life. We knew we had the right answers, even when our instincts told us otherwise, because chapter two is called I am always wrong. And it's about like ignoring your instincts. We understood how a woman must always protect herself against a man's lust in chapter three eye traps. In the case of rape as well, God never released Christians from following his law once they were saved by grace in chapter four legalism. And that went for countries laws as well as well. Chapter five, God ordained government. This person says, my family among them read that a woman who didn't cry out was as guilty of the rape as her attacker, and it fit completely in with everything we've been conditioned to believe. We accepted it. Because in Wisdom Booklet 36, Gother describes the legal penalties for kidnapping, assault, battery, and rape, and writes that God has established some very strict guidelines of responsibility for a woman who is attacked. She is to cry out for help. The victim who fails to do this is equally guilty with the attacker. I mean, I think they talked about this in the documentary. It's horrifying. So this person's like, you know, you're young and you're learning this. And it's all about like you're only innocent if you cry out. And it's like, 
What if I'm being attacked and threatened as somebody has a knife, as a gun, is stronger than me? What if I'm I'm panicked, I'm in shock? So like basically there are a million reasons why a person would not cry out and they know that. And they're using that to say, if you don't do that, then you're not innocent, which is so, so criminally, horrendously fucked up. And there they showed this chart of counseling sexual abuse. And it's just it's honestly it makes me sick to even revisit because, I mean, what does it say that this like all knowing higher power, this alleged being that loves you unconditionally, that you do everything for, whose authority matters above all else and that has your best interests allegedly in mind? When you're being taught that this is also a God who would hold a woman guilty for her own rape, where abuse is accepted unless you fall within these really specific parameters that are essentially designed to trap you into self-guilt, blame, and shame and to protect people in power. And it's really, really upsetting. And Bill Gothard himself was accused of sexually harassing multiple young women. His brother, according to Recovering Grace, was maintaining sexually abusive relationships with seven women at one time. Obviously, Bill did nothing to stop it. And it says he bound us in legalism. He taught us to accept spiritual abuse as part of who God is. Meanwhile, the only principle that Gothard ever really lived by was his idea of absolute authority, which he used, among other ways, to blame women for their own sexual harassment and assault. This person points out how they're reading these really problematic beliefs, these really harsh and bizarre interpretations of scripture to control like how you look, how you dress. And then like you flip the page and you're Graphing on an X and Y axis, you're learning that people are genetically weak to certain temptations or how eagles illustrate deliverance from evil. Like the curriculum is just so effing bizarre. Like early on in the documentary when ta- talking about Quiverful, either Jim Bob or Michelle calls overpopulation a myth. And then it says the entire world's population can fit in Jacksonville, Florida. And I don't know why that's so funny to me or what they're talking about or why would they choose Jacksonville? It just goes to show there's it's like, OK, you're you're saying something and let's say Seven billion people could fit that doesn't into the city limits of Jacksonville. Like if they could fit stacked to the sky, that doesn't mean they can live that you're not caveating for resources of of food and water and medical care and carrying capacity. It's it's moronic. It's inaccurate. And it's then repeated by people who hear it one time without any context or qualifiers. And that's why this type of education is so dangerous. It doesn't it allows people to memorize and repeat, but not critically think about what's being said. Well, the person that's saying it, it can argue that it's technically true because he said fit, not live. You know what I mean? It's ugh, it's, it's so maddening. This is why this is educational neglect. I actually found like a weird public like email or message board exchange in 2001 from like some Catholic priest or something about overpopulation that specifically targets Jacksonville. And then I went on the Wayback Machine to look at Internet archives. And I, the whole, uh, anyways, I don't know why I became obsessed with this Jacksonville thing, but it seems like this that might have been something that started with the Catholics, because obviously they've historically been quite opposed to contraception. Catholic families historically are huge, very anti-abortion. I think there's a lot of plagiarism in religions, especially ones that are like a little bit newer Um, or, you know, I mean, like even the Book of Mormon is widely known to have plagiarized quite a bit from a variety of sources or their rituals being plagiarized from Freemason rituals, a lot of like cults and self-help gurus that kind of like repackage and plagiarize the same information over and over. Keith Raniere, not that this is on par with a religion, but wasn't his like a bunch of his stuff, like even plagiarized from Orwell's 1984, like 
I think that especially in the context of somebody maybe not in a position where they should be building a curriculum, they're essentially just pulling and repackaging from other sources. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of the wisdom booklets were pulled from something else. Anyway, so what was interesting is when they explained how ATI wasn't just an academic curriculum, according to Chad in the documentary, he says world domination was the goal. World domination isn't my goal. My goal is just to not get my hair tangled in a pair of sunglasses. That's why I want to thank our last sponsor, Shady Rays. You guys know I think this is the easiest pitch of all time. Do you love aviators, but hate how they always get tangled in your hair? Yes. That's always been my problem with standard aviators. I love the look and they just mess with my part, mess with my dry shampoo situation. And Shady Rays has these super cute new tangle-free aviators. And it just makes too much sense. You can get the classic aviator look without the messy hair because of their custom patent pending nose piece that they designed specifically to avoid tangling. I posted these on Instagram this week to show you what they look like, but you get the same classic look and I can put them on my head. They're really lightweight frames that feel high end. And what's great for me is I do have trouble keeping track of sunglasses in general, just like not breaking them or losing them. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear that was really appealing to me. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by their lost and broken replacements. Lose or break your pair, even on day one. They'll send you a brand new one, no questions asked. For sunglasses, this is like essential, but never happens and is pretty crazy. And all protection program details can be found at ShadyRays.com. And every purchase supports the Shady Rays Impact Program, which works directly with nonprofits in their communities to empower and make adventure accessible for everyone from childhood cancer patients to young adults with serious health conditions. There's really no risk. If you don't love your pair, you can exchange for a new pair, or return them for free within 30 days. And exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the season. Head to ShadyRays.com slash TangleFree with code BETHEREIN5 for 30% off their best-selling Tangle-Free aviators and much more. Save before they sell out and try for yourself. The shade's rated five stars by over 250,000 people. ShadyRays.com slash TangleFree with code BETHEREIN5 for 30% off. So what was interesting is when they explained how ATI wasn't just an academic curriculum, according to Chad in the documentary, he says world domination was the goal. And that training centers were established in Russia, New Zealand, Australia, Mexico, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore. And groups started pushing to have morality taught in the public schools. And the materials created by Gother, published by BLP, they made a essentially a secularized version that stripped religion from it called Character First, with no overt references to God or the Bible. But it's still like the same framework. So Kids at the training centers, according to Heather, were taught how to gaslight the public school kids into biblical teachings, not knowing that they had biblical origins and that they were going out of their way to like indoctrinate kids. And it wasn't just in public schools that they implemented this character first program, made it into the private pr prison system, correctional facilities. It was called Correction Corporation America, now called Core Civic. So the IBLP teachings were like spreading to the military and police. And so when you're watching this PR machine for the Duggars, you're essentially watching this propaganda for the IB, IBLP and you're thinking like, oh, this way of living is this really specific niche community. But what they're really doing behind the scenes is growing into this huge organization with a very specific goal to not only get into secular spaces to do PR, like be present in media, like on the Duggars, where we're softening the image of what this lifestyle looks like and thus normalizing it. But then also these training centers that were allegedly in secular spaces became huge sources of campaigning during elections. Gothard was connecting with people like Mike Huckabee, Sarah Palin, Sonny Perdue, Rick Perry. 
and that the biggest donor for the IVLP is, of course, David Green, the CEO of Hobby Lobby, was estimated by Forbes to be worth $14.8 billion. And, you know, David Green, in my book, can make like his driftwood signs and live, laugh, shove it, because this man is also behind several legal controversies that many of us are well aware of, including the support of anti-LGBTQ legislation, a years-long legal fight eventually leading the Supreme Court to allowing companies to deny medical coverage for contraception on the basis of religious beliefs. And he's also one of the major donors behind those weird Super Bowl commercials that he gets as campaign, a campaign to promote Jesus and Christianity that ran two ads during the Super Bowl as part of a $100 million media investment. $100 million, with, a, with apparently plans to spend up to a billion dollars to change the image of Jesus. When people involved with the campaign were asked about it, they say, we look at Jesus like he was the perfect communicator. He used the tools and the means that he had available to him to get his message out. And that's all we're doing here. Oh, I, oh my God. It just makes me so frustrated because it's the irony of he gets us, right? Is like, personally, I just think the issue is that we really don't get him. And this is never what it was supposed to be about. Like, sure, normal operating expenses make sense. Paying your employees makes sense. There, there are countless expenses nonprofits do have that are completely fair. And evangelizing has long been done and is kind of a word of mouth thing. But spending $100 million, upwards of a, of a billion in three years, just to like brand Jesus in mainstream media is, is unequivocally not what Jesus would do. He would spend his time and resources on humanitarian aid, on the unhoused, on the poor, on the sick, on the hungry. I don't care. Like, it's, it's, it's so disgusting to manipulate his image this way, in my opinion. And I'm not like a religious gal anymore. But I just think this is, it's so, so gross. And the fact that they don't pay taxes and they can use the money for this is gross. And I just, I hate all of it anyway. That was a tangent. But David Green is a part of that CEO of Hobby Lobby, who is one of the IBLP's biggest donors. He gets us as a 501c3 nonprofit managed by a company called Signature, which, according to CNN, is a subsidiary of the Servant Foundation. And the Servant Foundation has donated tens of millions of dollars to the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian legal group. And as we know, the ADF has been involved in several legislative pushes to curtail LGBTQ rights and to quash non-discrimination legislation in the Supreme Court. If I really wanted to spiral and compare, like, people that seem a little bit more mild that I was exposed to a lot in my youth that seemed like these good guys with family values, like Dr. James Dobson or whatever, who's one of the co-founders of the Alliance Defending Freedom, formerly the Alliance Defense Fund. I was skimming Wikipedia to make sure I had that right. An American conservative Christian legal advocacy group working to expand Christian practices within public schools and in government, to outlaw abortion to curtail rights for LGBTQ people, so on and so forth. They've been handed so much discriminatory and regressive legislation. It's genuinely terrifying. And this is where we get into what I think was the most interesting part of the documentary that was a short part of the documentary that, like, since I, having just watched it and wanted to, like, recap it, um, haven't even had time to, like, dive into, but you really start to see how this is all interconnected. So, like, you think that Duggars are this, like, niche fundamentalist group that's not affecting your life. You realize they're funded by a billionaire Fortune 500 CEO that also has a hand in a lot of discriminatory uh, legislation. And who funds things like these hundred million dollar campaigns for Jesus that are a part of this organization that is linked to major backers of the ADF who are actively involved in lobbying for anti-LGBTQ 
anti-abortion, religious freedom type legislation that really is about Christian supremacy and not religious freedom and trying to infiltrate these values of a faith other people simply do not have into secular spaces. And when you see how interconnected it all is, like even just looking when I was fact checking that Dr. James Dobson was a co-founder of the ADF, I, I feel like they said this in the documentary, but maybe I wasn't connecting the dots at the time. And then reminded that Michael Ferris has been the CEO of the ADF since 2017. And what is Michael Ferris a co-founder of? Generation Joshua, you know, the Joshua generation part of episode four, as well as the, as well as the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, as well as the co-founder of Patrick Henry College, which we're all talked about in the documentary. So his connections to the ADF, I think, are really interesting and their broader political involvement. Not that I need, you know, I think this documentary did a good job proving how enmeshed all this is. So according to the documentary, they interview a former member, Alex Harris, who says the real story behind the Duggars is a much bigger one. The Joshua Generation is one of the most ambitious plots of modern evangelical history, and almost no one has ever heard of it. It's a decades-long, multi-generational plan to raise up an elite strike force of Christian homeschool graduates to infiltrate the highest levels of government. And this guy, speaking, Alex, he's a graduate of Harvard. He was homeschooled, a graduate of Harvard Law School, a law clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the U.S. Supreme Court, previously one of the leaders of the Joshua Generation. And talks about how a lot of the men who came up with the idea for the Joshua Generation were influenced by Gothard, attending IBLP seminars, and espousing quiverful ideals. And they interview another woman who says Gothard was a template. He's got his hands in everything. And you're multiplying kids. You're telling them to be fruitful and multiply. Believe this quiverful principle. They show this chart that honestly looks like an MLM. Like, I don't know. Which is, it's like a pyramid of parents having so many kids and these kids being basically warriors for the kingdom of God that they want to position kind of the best and brightest of the Christian homeschool movement to assume positions of power and influence in government and in the law. The goal was Christian homeschool graduates would be U.S. senators, U.S. presidents, and most importantly, be U.S. Supreme Court justices in order to bring America back to its rightful position as a truly Christian nation. It starts in high school with organizations like Team Act and Generation Joshua who are giving homeschooled teenagers civics training, organizing training, and they show like volunteers for Mike Huckabee, blah, blah, blah. And there were these homeschool debate clubs. You could take on any liberal or atheist arguments and statement and debunk it to defend your faith and referring to it as a training ground for the real battleground that is the dark world outside. Anyways, it was like a, a small segment. It was so interesting. And I wanted to like look deeper into some of Alex Harris's work who was talking about it that was a part of it that was able to go to Harvard Law School after being homeschooled and to infiltrate government positions. And I thought the tie to being IBLP influence was interesting. I thought the chart that made it look like you have these parents and you have all these kids and then all these kids can go to these government positions. It's like a get rich slow scheme. It's like the worst MLM of all time. It's, you know, not hey hun, but hey bun in the oven. Like have all the kids and multiply them and they will be in my downline for world domination in like 18 to 35 years. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm. it's a long game. It, it's so interesting to think of Quiverful in the context of breeding as many people as possible to infiltrate positions of power. Like, that's crazy. I'm like making a joke, but like, it's not funny. It's actually quite alarming. This was, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the documentary, but it was covered so briefly that I assume they're teeing it up to do to go into this further in another season, I was skimming an AMA with one of the directors 
somebody asked this question. I was wondering the same thing. Cannot reiterate enough. I'm not talking about homeschooling in general. I'm talking about the specific type of homeschooling this documentary features, which positions it as a form of educational neglect because the teachings are not based in like accredited curriculums, rather in incredibly narrow religious positioning of like scripture. But I was confused by, okay, like if you're part of like this Christian homeschooling that you now see like such gaps in your education, I am interested in how you get into an Ivy League school because I I had a public school education, I mean, mostly due to my own intelligence and lack of extracurriculars, I could have never gotten into an Ivy. But it is interesting to think of people that don't have the most well-rounded education, like performing at the highest levels of these educational institutions. And somebody asked the director that. This person on Reddit said, how do we connect the jump between the educational neglect of homeschooling to the Joshua generation attending institutions like Harvard and Oxford? How do they get into places like the Senate and Supreme Court clerking without the usual connections, like nepotism, elite private schools, etc.? And the director said, oh, I wanted to cover this. First, not everyone homeschooled experiences educational neglect, not preaching, but seeing what we know. Patrick Henry College, a.k.a. Harvard for homeschoolers. They have so many connections, more than almost anyone trying to get those internships. They win at moot court every year over places like Princeton. Many smart people go there, even if they've had early educational deficits. Please dive into this school if you haven't. Go watch the scripted film about them that they made on YouTube, where a male student comes up with a winning argument for how to defeat Roe v. Wade, featuring Mike Ferris. Patrick Henry College students go on to do many political jobs. Chillingly, there's a pipeline through their national security program right into the FBI, CIA, and Homeland Security. And she's attached a link. So again, Patrick Henry College is a private liberal arts, non-denominational, conservative, Protestant Christian college in Virginia. And as according to the director, it's like the Harvard for homeschoolers, founded by Michael Ferris, current CEO or president of the ADF. At Patrick Henry College, all students must sign a statement of faith before they enroll, affirming belief in what the college considers core Christian doctrine. For example, they're asked to acknowledge that Satan exists on a personal, as a personal malevolent being who acts as a tempter and accuser, for whom hell, the place of eternal punishment, was prepared, where all who die outside of Christ shall be confined to conscious torment for eternity. You know, regular party school, stuff like that. But what's interesting that the director pointed out that I saw on this Reddit thing that if you on like phc.edu, there's a website for strategic intelligence and national security. And it says Patrick Henry College's strategic intelligence program seeks to integrate quality classroom education with practical experience, leadership opera- opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Strategic intelligence and national security major equips students with a respect for the intelligence function and its role in defending a free society, cultivates their ability to anticipate moral, ethical, and mission challenges in order to defend the security of the United States. It's the only Christian school that's certified by the International Association for Intelligence Education. And it says, if you're still in high school, join us for the Strategic Intelligence Camp at Patrick Henry College. SI Camp functions as a unique environment for Christian teens to interact with the idea of how should intelligence look from a Christian perspective. In our era, terrorism, privacy, security, illegality, technology, and culture present increasingly thorny situations that touch intelligence that are extremely relevant to everyday citizens, both as patriots and Christians. And just reading this through the lens of like infiltrating national security as a means to promote Christianity, I'm just like, what is going, this is horrifying. As we've talked about a million times, I just am like, the point is not, of religious freedom is not Christian supremacy. It, the point is you are free to practice, but it should also protect others from discriminatory practices of your religion. So like, I just, th- this stuff is very frightening to me. And I assume that's where they're going with the next part of the documentary. But to read, just to, to be clear on uh, the Joshua Generation stuff, because it was such a small part, but a very interesting one. I wanted to read directly from 
Alex Harris's words that I assume were kind of chopped up in the documentary. Like I said, he was homeschooled. He's a Harvard law grad. He's like Forbes 30 under 30. He's an author or whatever. I gather he's still like religious, but has since separated a lot of this uh, and now speaks out about the Joshua generation. So he said, this is at Harris J. Alex. The short segment in episode four on the Joshua generation has also struck a chord. Many people were shocked to learn about a plan to raise up Christian homeschool grads to assume positions of power and influence in government law and beyond. People are interested in whether the Joshua generation segment in Shiny Happy People is accurate, and they want to learn more about where this plan came from, whether it's succeeding, how it fits into broader political and religious trends, and more. I spent a full day with the filmmakers and about two minutes made it into the series. That's okay. But it means there's a lot more to the Joshua Generation story. On this topic, shiny happy people tease up an important headline. It doesn't tell the full story. To start, is shiny happy people's discussion of the Joshua Generation accurate? In general, yes. The Joshua Generation is a real thing, and it's been far more effective than most people realize. With that said, there are two caveats I think that should be given. The first, to avoid inaccurate narrowing story. And the second, to avoid a potentially misleading and unhelpful expansion. The first caveat is that while the documentary ties the Joshua generation to IBLP and the Duggars, they're just one expression of a larger movement idea within the Christian homeschooling movement, and not a particularly effective one. So for example, even before Josh Duggar's horrific crimes came to light, I wouldn't have considered him a major Joshua generation success story, and IBLP was never a primary conduit in large part due to its opposition to higher education. The second caveat is that the Joshua generation is not some secret society with card-carrying members. It's a powerful idea influenced by other powerful ideas that shaped homeschool leaders and resulted in mission-advancing institutions and ways of thinking. But I want to be clear that not every person associated with these institutions or ideas is consciously pursuing the goals of the Joshua generation. They are, however, part of a larger machine being fed these ideas and goals. Um, So the bigger story is the Joshua generation was coined by Michael Ferris, who begun his career as a constitutional lawyer, state director for the moral majority and protege of Tim LaHaye, a titan of the religious right, best known for his apocalyptic Left Behind series. Oh my God, I was like, why do I know that name? Ferris is one of the most influential leaders of the Christian homeschooling movement. In 83, he founded the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund, Homeschool Legal Defense Association, with a mission to defend homeschool parents against attempted interference by state school boards and social workers. Together with this guy's dad, Greg Harris, and some other people, uh, Ferris became known as one of the four pillars of the Christian homeschooling movement. The Joshua generation is an analogy to the Old Testament patriarch who led the children of Israel to the promised land after Moses led them out of captivity in Egypt. The Moses generation takes the first step, then Joshua generation finishes the job. Within the Christian homeschooling community, the Joshua generation idea was explicitly about engaging in a battle to take back America for God. Some meant this culturally, others meant it politically, others weren't sure what it meant. As Ferris described it, Christian homeschool grads with our superior training and a thoroughly conservative Christian worldview would disproportionately fill positions of power and influence. We'd be the senators, presidents, and justices of the next generation. Ferris most prominently used the term the Joshua generation in his 2005 book of that title. A few years later, HSLDA launched Generation Joshua, a.k.a. Gen J, to train and mobilize homeschool students to campaign in key elections around the country. Oh, that's a good thing to know because I was confusing the two. This is why I was trying to talk about it accurately. A lot of people confuse Joshua generation with the Generation Joshua organization. It's a mistake. Gen J was founded as a part of the larger movement, but it's just a part. The vast majority of Generation Joshua never participated in Gen J. Read the thread at Harris J. Alex. He goes into the origins being in Reconstructionism. Um, Back to the Joshua generation. What made Ferris singularly effective was his creation of institutions that helped turn a powerful idea into reality. The most important of these were the NCFCA, a speech and debate league, and Patrick Henry College for homeschool graduates. Over the past few years, you could find 
Patrick Henry College and CFCA alums at the highest levels of politics, law, and media. SCOTUS clerks, senior White House and Senate staff, top reporters and commentators with major news outlets, nonprofit orgs, and more. And then there's Madison Cawthorn, who campaigned with Jen Jay in high school, briefly attended PHC, filled the seat of his former NCFCA debate coach and White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. He goes on to say, what does this mean? It means it's all real. It can work and is working. The vast majority of the Joshua Generation members I referred to above have, like me, abandoned the mission. There are many reasons for this. Christian nationalism is bad theology and often bad history. The world isn't the caricature we were taught. We read the Bible and see priorities that don't line up with GOP policies. We've seen the hypocrisy and abuses of our leaders. Some have deconstructed leaving faith or evangelicalism behind. Others, myself included, have developed a more biblical view of political and cultural engagement, disentangling faith in Christ and the misguided project of cultural dominion we were given as kids. This is because the Joshua Generation mission is ultimately not biblical, among other problems. I think he's still a religious guy, and he's saying that he needs people to know there's more to true Christianity than the pursuit of power, more than blind allegiance to a political party or politician. Jesus, too, is expected to be a Joshua, a conquering hero who would restore God's people, earthly power, and throw off Roman rule at the edge of a sword. Instead, he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. There's a breathtaking beauty to the true story of Christ. It's a message that he has been repeatedly co-opted for personal and political ends. It has inspired some of the greatest acts of love in the world that the world has ever known, blah, blah, blah. And he ends it by saying we were never supposed to be like Joshua. We were supposed to be like Jesus. Anyways, I skipped over a lot of the thread, but I just wanted it to come from somebody who had like been a part of it because I find the whole thing a little bit confusing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just an example of how these efforts of Christian nationalism are like alive and well and long term. I often think about this. Like, I wonder who, especially that has grown up through the recent political landscape, like, is inspired to or motivated to enter the political arena as a career it's it's something that just has never interested me personally to pursue professionally i don't think i'd be good at it i don't think i have the strength for it um and a lot of it frustrates me in ways that like i i don't know being that being your job it's just not a desire i've had I just didn't, in my reference group, know many people pursuing a political career. And it was interesting seeing these like male Christian high school students in the documentary, like marching on, entering this pipeline. It's just interesting to think about how much of a long game that is and how people are very specifically groomed for it. And it just made me wonder, you know, I don't know, outside of like nepotism connections, your family being a political family, like how are people engaging your average, unbiased, well-educated citizens to get more involved in governmental positions. I don't have the answer to that, but is it weird to say, like, as a person, I, I've never really craved power or control. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I need to think on that more. But, like, it just doesn't sound appealing to me. It's interesting to me that it does appeal to people. I just, I'm interested in, like, advocacy and helping people, but controlling people sounds nightmarish and, like, a lot of pressure. And it's just a ruse I couldn't keep up because I I want them to like me. I want them to be comfortable and happy. Um, Anyway, I don't know. Getting off topic here. But other tidbits I picked up on like TikTok. I was looking at Brooke Arnold's TikTok and she said that when she went to Bill Gothard's house, she told that story of him opening her his eyes, looking at her while she was praying. Um, So like Bill Gothard bragged about how Mike Pence calls him weekly to pray. And one other thing she said I thought was crazy was he had a vasectomy reversal choir. Like, this guy was so obsessed with people populating the earth and this quiverful nonsense that he had a choir that were the children, like the, the offspring of dads who had vasectomies reversed due to the IBLP. Like, what the fuck? 
Uh, yeah, there's so many fun rabbit holes to go down surrounding the the interviewees and the former victims of this church and uh, as harrowing as it is and hard as a lot of it was to watch and process. Very proud of the brave people that participated, very interested in supporting their content going forward. I think that a lot of um, religious and culty documentaries can fall short of drawing parallels to the bigger picture, and this one really did an outstanding job. And it's no surprise because the directors, Olivia Christ and um, Julia Willoughby Nason, also did Lula, Lula Rich, which I thought was a really well done documentary that I did two episodes about. But anyway, the the way it ends, I think, is on a really important note. And they were saying, I'm sorry, forgetting his name. Um, he was saying that it was one of the best interviewers, too. I thought uh, we thought we had no power, but it turned out that what people in power feared the most were all of us, the allegedly powerless. And all they had to do was talk. And yes, 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 yes. So, so many so many sorority snaps. I, I've experienced this myself doing this for five years. Over time, you'll slowly hear me talk more and more about things I'm scared to talk about that offend people, that get me a lot of pushback. Religion was one that took me a while to get comfortable without over-explaining or over-apologizing. And the more I thought about it, I just am like, actually, the things that are designed to keep you quiet are the things we should be talking about the most. And I just think it's such an important thing to remember that the, the powerless having information and knowledge and talking amongst themselves, that discourse is essential for any sense of accountability and fairness. And um, I just thought all the people that participated were really brave. And I thought the documentary was really well done. I just thought it was a good use of time. And I feel like this is more of a recap than an analysis. Again, I'm like new to this, but I still wanted to talk about it and give it more airtime because I think it's worth everyone's time. So thank you for the privilege of your time. And joining me to talk about it because I wanted to talk about it after I saw it, as I'm sure many of you did. If you're interested in more religious adjacent stuff, I think I on my Spotify profile, Kate Kennedy, the verified one, I have a playlist of episodes that are more religious adjacent. Preaching to the Friar from last year's one. There's a two-part purity culture deep dive from two, 2019. I have two episodes on Lula Rich. Lots of, you know, three-part episode on Rachel Hollis, the self-help gurus. Uh, lots on MLMs and stuff. Uh, just, I don't know why, but I always associate like religions, cults, MLMs, self-help people, like they all operate under the same sort of themes to me. There's a long archive of my back catalog, but religion comes up a lot here and, um, does in my book, One in a Millennial, if you want to pre-order that. And we'll continue to have these combos as it comes up and fits into the pop cultural zeitgeist. So I appreciate you so much. You want to rate and review five stars, share with a friend, tag me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy or at Be There in Five. Would it mean the world? Bonus content up on Patreon. I'm doing some riveting stuff right now, unboxing baby products and trying to do something that they call nesting that allegedly I'm supposed to get a burst of energy, even though I have no energy and no idea what all of these products do. I'm still trying to have fun with it. Um, so bonus content on patreon.com slash be there in five. I need to put up my Ted Lasso finale review too remind me to do that but yeah as always let me know your thoughts and i'll let you know mine i'll be there in five i swear <laughs>